I want to begin today with a little audience participation. So take out a piece of paper and a pen. Don't worry, you are not going to have to share this. But I want you to write your wish list down. So I'm going to give you 20 seconds or so. Write down as many things as you've been wishing you could have. Things you want for yourself or your family. Ready? Go. And if you bought it in the last week, you still have to write it down because it's been a few days. Okay, if we had the time, I'd ask people to share theirs. But here are some of mine, not in any particular order. And you can see, I think, from this list, the line between want and need is very thin at times, right? Okay, so window treatments for our house. We've been in there about a year and a half. There's nothing up. Um, a used ping pong or pool table for our kids. Winter boots that fit so I don't have to borrow my son's. A winter coat. This one, not because I need one, because I just really want a more stylish one. Um, a set of gloves that match. I've lost one of each set, so I have one of each um, pair there. A nicer TV. A snowblower. We're really regretting not getting that one this year. A remote starter for our car. Doesn't that sound good? Heated seats. Canned lighting in the basement. A pair of earrings. Nicer, casual clothes, and on and on. If I had more time, I could tell you more. When does it stop? I want to suggest this morning that every one of us, by virtue of where we live, is going to struggle with the temptation for more. How could we not? Our days are bombarded with advertisements that don't just make us aware of needs we have. They create needs for us we didn't even know existed. Some of the smartest people on the planet spend their days thinking about how to get people to buy whatever it is their company is marketing. And at what cost? We end up believing a lie. We end up thinking life is really all about who has the most toys. Or that we will be really happy if we just had a little more income or we're able to take that one family vacation. It's no wonder we're a nation of consumerism debt, even exhaustion from working overtime to fuel those spending habits. Today's message confronts that lie head on and sets us on a very different path. The message comes to us from Jesus. And for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, who find his way of life compelling, fulfilling even, his message while countercultural may be just what we need to hear to free us from this way of life where we are always grasping for more. The message comes to us from a story Jesus told one day when he was teaching. As we saw last week when John kicked off this series, each parable or story Jesus told is told to make a point. Our story today is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. You can turn to page 1586 in your pew Bible or follow along on our screens. Or you may simply want to listen to the story as Jesus' audience would have done. Once we've lingered in the story for a bit to see the point Jesus is making, we'll spend some final moments considering how we can live that out. Now before I tell Jesus' story, I want to set some context. As is often the case, Jesus' story is prompted by an occasion. He's been teaching on various topics. At one point, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher or rabbi, 
Now, generally when people refer to Jesus as teacher, it's not a good thing. Jesus is first and foremost Lord, and only where his lordship is accepted will his teaching be followed. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In the ancient world, inheritance laws dictated that the eldest son got twice as much inheritance as the other sons. Siblings today, we are in a different world. Do not try to pull this over on your brother. Okay, when the situation warranted more clarity than the law provided, rabbis would be consulted to give their opinion on legal matters. It's not surprising then that Jesus, since he's been gaining reputation for being a rabbi, someone seeking his counsel. Now, an agreement couldn't be reached until the older brother agreed with whatever had been decided. So since there's still a conflict, it appears in this case, a younger brother is being cheated out of his portion of the inheritance. In essence, he's saying to Jesus, tell my brother he's wrong and he should give me what I deserve, my portion of the estate. Look at the injustice I'm experiencing, Jesus. Watch what Jesus does here. Verse 14, man, if that sounds like there's some displeasure there, you're right. The word here is used to introduce a reprimand. Man, who appointed me ruler or judge between you? Jesus asked rhetorically. Much to the man's disappointment, Jesus doesn't want to weigh in on this matter. Instead of seeing injustice, Jesus sees something else he finds far more troubling. Verse 15. Then he said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. With striking discernment, Jesus determines the root issue here isn't injustice. It's greed. The desire to have more than you have. The opposite of contentment. The man's request reveals his priority is on getting his money, not on reconciling with his brother. And Jesus, seeing right into the heart of this man's request, knows that at the rate this man is going, even if he were to get his inheritance, he still wouldn't be satisfied. Because the desire for more is never satisfied. Like an addiction needing a hit, a higher hit each time to produce the same desired result, Jesus knows the human heart can never be satisfied by material possessions. We were made for so much more. And so out of deep love for the man, he first issues a warning, watch out for greed. And then he tells him the truth, the truth that will set him free if he would just take Jesus at his word. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then to drive the point home, Jesus tells a story. The story goes like this. The ground of a certain man, rich man, yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Notice in verse 16, the man was already rich. His needs, as well as those under his care, had already been met. And then somehow, we're not told exactly how, he hits the market at the right time and makes a killing. Prophet soaring, he engages in a soliloquy here, pondering what to do with the excess. I'll say to myself is literally, I'll dialogue with myself. Only one problem. Dialogues are meant to involve at least two people. This is actually a very telling sentence. Our individualized, independent culture just glosses right over this, but to the first century listener, their eyes would have bugged out at this point. Kenneth Bailey, who spent several decades living in the Middle East, observes how odd that statement is for someone from a village culture, as was the first century culture. In communal cultures, important decisions are made only after long discussions with input from family members, neighbors, friends. Everybody's business is everybody's business. The fact that this man has no one or is not involving anyone is telling and sad. His grammar reveals his focus. It's all in the first person. I, my, mine. The self-centered litany reads, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. I will say to myself, there's no mention of God here who gave the farmer this crop. There's no mention of the workers who've helped cultivate and then harvest this crop. And as the rich man determines how he will spend his money, it's a pretty narrow list of beneficiaries. Himself. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Retire early, play golf, drink wine, go to expensive restaurants, get a beach house. You earned it. What else are you going to do with it? That mantra permeates our society, often serving as rationale for weekend partying or taking vacations. Work yourself to the bone, then kick back and relax and do nothing. It's often even the vision we're given for retirement. Relax, do nothing. You've worked hard, you've earned it. And of course, there's nothing wrong with relaxing or enjoying the gifts God has given us. In fact, God lobbies for more rest than we think. One out of every seven days is to be a Sabbath, a rest from work, where we remember, thanks be to God, we are more than what we do. And as for partying, if you recall from our hospitality series, The Table, Jesus loved a good party. This is what got him in trouble. He spent a lot of his time eating and drinking with people. But at what point does enjoyment turn into greed? What did Jesus see in this man that he felt compelled to warn against? The first hint comes in how Jesus addresses the man in verse 20. Fool. In the Bible, fool is a very specific term to refer to someone who has no regard for God. Psalm 14.1 captures this. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. That's precisely what's missing in our barn builder's calculations. He has thought a lot about money and how to spend it, but he's not thought a bit about God who in fact gave him this money and indeed his very life. 
The language used in verse 20, your life will be demanded from you, is the language used of paying back a loan. It's as if Jesus is telling the barn builder, your very life is on loan from God who can demand it back at any time. So don't be deceived. While you may have plenty and you can enjoy that, don't forget there's another dimension to life that must be taken into account. There is life after this life. And we're to put our hope in, put our energies and resources into that life. Jesus says it clearly in verses 20 and 21. Who will get what you've left behind? Don't aim to be rich. Aim to be rich toward God. Allow God's values and priorities to shape yours. In the verses following these, Jesus will expound upon this. And these words may sound familiar to you, either from this chapter or from another portion in Matthew 6. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your clothes, what you will wear. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. See, the problem in this story is not the fact that the man got rich. The problem was that he hoarded it and didn't share it with others. I mean, if you think about it from a first century perspective, this farmer's decision to hold back will likely have detrimental consequences for the peasants and tenants who are his neighbors who far outnumber him. As one expert in ancient cultures noted, by holding back his crops, he may have potentially hurt the regional economy. Rather than sharing what he has bountifully received with those who may have needed it, he hoards it, waiting for the opportune time when the demand is greater, driving the price up. And in so doing, he forces others to be more dependent on him, securing his own economic power and position in the village. You see, the problem with greed, as one writer notes, is that it doesn't just feed our wants. It tramples over others' needs. Greed starts as just a simple desire to acquire and retain money and possessions, but the desire becomes more and more excessive until there is no cap or limit to what we acquire or to what we are willing to do to get it. Taken to an extreme, greed causes us to use people to serve our love for money rather than to use our money to serve our love for people. And that's what we were given money for, to love others. In full form, greed impedes our love of neighbor because we prioritize our wants over our neighbor's needs. But it doesn't start that way. It starts innocently enough with simple desire who would think a farmer building a barn was a moral failure? That's what farmers do. But somehow, along the way, the man's wealth is no longer seen by him as love to be shared, but rather as power to be used. Maybe that's why the Ten Commandments both start and end with this theme. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, helps us to remember and enjoy all the good gifts God has given us. And to be very clear, that while money and other possessions are great gifts, they are very poor gods. They do not satisfy. And the 10th commandment, 
You shall not covet or want what you do not have. For if we do, there will be no end to our wanting. And our wanting and grasping will impede our love for neighbor. So, what if we were to take Jesus' words seriously today? By our world standards, every one of us in this room is rich. So forget about what Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates should be doing with their money. Let's think about what we should be doing with ours. Jesus gives a stern warning in verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now the language for guarding here is less like mall cop or security guard at a public library and more like undercover agent guarding a dangerous prisoner. Okay, see those images? My apologies to mall cops. (laughs) Since we're in basketball season, maybe this is a better um, example. There's defense, sort of just standing there facing your opponent. And there's defense, arms up, toes on your toes, alert, ready to go. Jesus says greed's got game. It's a tough opponent. It's subtle and it's sneaky. And we're going to get beat every time unless we start to pay attention and stay alert. So what would it look like if we want to shut down greed or guard ourselves against it? As we conclude today, let me offer three suggestions. First, Factor God into the equation in our lives. (laughs) Remember our barn builder's extensive soliloquy? There's no mention or thought of God at all. He didn't even thank God for the abundant harvest. You know, it's so much easier to use our money for God when we believe it has come from him. Eugene Peterson, author of the message, wrote about this story, All our wealth is grace wealth. Meaning, when it comes to it, we only have what we've earned because of God's gracious provision to us in life, in health, in strength, in training, in mental capacity. So instead of thinking, I earned it at the site of that next direct deposit, maybe it would be more accurate to say, thank you, God. Beyond thanking God, we can look for ways to intentionally conform our perspective to reality, which is that there is more to life than what we see. There is God and his kingdom and a life to come. And believe me, our world doesn't want us to think about that. It's really bad for business. Treasures in heaven, Amazon and Target and room and board would much rather have me focus on treasures on earth. So whatever we can do to remember this world is not all there is, is a good thing. Maybe you will want to call a fast from shopping for non-essentials for a certain time period. Maybe this will happen for you in worship as you more intentionally try to remember there is a reality beyond what we see. Maybe it happens for you at a funeral, as it does for me, when you suddenly gain perspective on what's really important in life. And because it's really hard to choose to set a date on your calendar to attend a funeral, maybe you will want to choose to attend Ash Wednesday service this week, where we, along with the historic church, will remember, from dust you have come and from dust you will return. Whether in practicing gratitude to God or simply reminding ourselves of reality, we can fight greed's hold by factoring God into the equation in our lives. 
A second way we can take Jesus seriously and defend ourselves against greed is to set limits. See, the man in this story could have chosen to build a bigger barn, or he could have chosen instead to keep the barn the same size and give away whatever didn't fit in it. I think of others who've made different decisions than the barn builder. I didn't know Andy's dad, Dale. He died when Andy was 12, but I've heard stories about him. And one story I love about him is that when his church was in need of a building, they didn't have one, Dale didn't have a lot of extra money. He was a social worker. His wife was home with two boys. But he got a second job. And coincidentally, he'd been raised on a farm, so he plowed fields. He took all the extra money he raised and gave it to his church because he believed in the work they were doing. He gave his surplus for someone else's field, someone else's barn. I think of another uh, elderly woman, Anne, from our church in Vancouver. I knew she had a vibrant faith. I just didn't think she had a lot of money <laughs> till I attended her funeral. It was packed, and I, I saw the president of our seminary there and a number of other staff, um, and I went up to them and I said, did you know Anne? And they said, didn't you know? Anne gave hundreds of thousands, or whatever the amount was, of dollars to Regent College. Anne had lived so simply so that she could share her money to support people from all over the world to come and study the Bible and learn about God. Anne could have built a much bigger barn, but she chose instead to help train people, myself included, to serve the church. What a gift. What if more income didn't necessarily mean more for us? What if, and this is radical, I know, we simply chose to live at the same income level regardless of how much money we made? And any surplus became a conversation, a dialogue with God, if you will. What do I do with this money you've given me, God, so that you can accomplish what you want to do on this earth? Now, let me be clear. <laughs> I am not encouraging fiscal irresponsibility. We just finished our cash management course where we talked about the importance of paying off debt of setting aside money regularly so that we have emergency funds for when, not if, we need them, of allocating money towards college and retirement and other good financial priorities. But we can't even, in fact, we can't even know what a surplus would be until we first actually know what our expenses are. So maybe you will want to start there and pay attention to your expenses in the coming weeks. And maybe as you do, you will want to set a limit and commit to giving anything above that to others. Alternatively, there might be some here who instead want to embrace the enough mindset, not on how you spend money, but on how you make it. Maybe we really don't need to work all those extra hours of overtime. Maybe instead we can just enjoy the relationships with those God has given us who sometimes suffer in our desire to obtain more. A third and final step towards guarding ourselves against greed is to give generously. I'm sorry, there's just no way around it. 
We cannot loosen the grip money has on us without first letting go of it. Like a cancer growing undetected in our bodies, greed builds and tightens our attachment to things before we're even aware of it. The only chance we stand is to regularly loosen that grip habitually by letting it go. These small, mundane acts of defiance and resistance will, over time, teach us how to want the right things in the right way and in the right proportions. One way we can order our desires is by giving a portion of our income back to God for his work in the world. And that's either giving it to your church or to some organization that's doing God's work of justice and mercy, meeting people's needs. Now, the good news is I will never know what you're about to do with what I say because there is only one person who processes the giving in our church and nobody else knows and we like to keep it that way. It's wonderful. I don't know anything. John doesn't know anything. It, it, we just get to react, relate to you as people without that clouding anything. But I'm going to say from my own personal experience, there is nothing like tithing to help reorient your perspective on money and possessions. It's called a tithe or tenth because the general rule of thumb is to give 10% of our income to God. But the amount isn't what matters. The Bible emphasizes proportionate giving, that those who, give, who have more give more. Those who have less give less. If this is all new for you, I really want to say it might be irresponsible to give 10% right now. <laughs> so maybe you start with 2 or 3% and make it a goal to work up over time. And we can practice generosity not only with our incomes, um, but by generously giving to others and other opportunities as well. Regularly, regularly letting go of money helps us not to trust in it more than we ought to and enables us to meet our neighbor's needs instead of just our wants. City Church, I know it's hard to believe. I know it goes against everything this world screams at us every day. But take it from Jesus. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Real life is only found in him. It's found in using our money to serve our love for people rather than in using people to serve our love for money. So when God in his goodness blesses us with more than what we need to live, may we refrain from building bigger barns. May we instead have the humility and the courage to dialogue with him and to consider alternative options. Who can we share our surplus with to simply meet another's basic need? And in so doing, we will find freedom. We will find real life one that cannot be taken from us even when we die. We will provide purses for ourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so aware. Everything we've just said and thought about flies so in the face of our world and what we see. We cannot hear this except for your spirit to speak words of truth to us. And we know, we know 
Life is not found in the abundance of possessions, but it's so hard to let go of that, and it's so tempting. So would you now, Holy Spirit, do your translating work for each one of us that we could hear what it is you have for us? What does it mean to live this out? How can we be faithful to your call so that we are freed and can live the life that is truly life and so that others may live? We pray this in Jesus' name and only for his sake. Amen.